open to Psalm 105, Psalm 105. This particular psalm is about the Lord's eternal faithfulness, the Lord's eternal faithfulness. Now, this is a psalm of praise, and this psalm focuses on the positive experiences that Israel had in their early history. Now, in contrast to this psalm, Psalm 106 reviews the same time in history, but its emphasis is on the faithlessness of the people. This psalm celebrates God's faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham in the lives of his people. The people needed to remember to be faithful to God, who had never forgotten to be faithful to them. The outline in the psalm is as follows. First, a call to praise God in verses 1 through 6. Second, God's covenant with Abraham, verses 7 through 12. Third, the early experiences of God's people, verses 13 through 15. Fourth, the experience of Joseph in verses 16 through 22. Fifth, the experience of Israel in Egypt, verses 23 through 25. Sixth, the great deliverance from Egypt in verses 26 through 36. Seventh, the great provisions, verses 37 through 41. And then an eighth is God's promise to Abraham, verses 42 through 45. The theme of the psalm is God's amazing works. It's about the mighty things that God did to bring Israel to the promised land. Remembering the miracles encourages us to keep uh, living close to the Lord. And the author is David. Let's begin with verse 1 of Psalm 105. And the psalmist says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. First of all, we're told to give God thanks. Second, we're, called, we're, we're told to call on his name. And third, we are told to make known his deeds among the people. In other words, we're to tell others about him. Now, in Hebrew, there is no word that means to thank in the way that our English word, thank, is used as a common expression of gratitude between people. The meaning of the Hebrew word is to make public announcement. And its association with another Hebrew word meaning hand, suggesting hands outstretched towards God in praise. A public out, hands outstretched to God in praise. It's a sign of thanksgiving. The word is used regularly in the Bible to show public approval of God's person and attributes and the public testimony to what he's done for his people. And this is the primary meaning of praise. Old Testament believers gave thanks, praising the Lord for his mercy towards them. The first 15 verses here in this psalm are also found in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 through 22, where they're sung as part of the celebration of David bringing the ark back, the ark of God back to Jerusalem. Now, wouldn't it be great if every Christian made verse 1 where it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, and make his deeds known among the peoples. Wouldn't it be great if every Christian made verse 1 their goal to do just as the psalmist says in verse 1? I mean, shouldn't this automatically be our heart's desire and the goal of every Christian? Again, to thank him, to call upon his name, and to tell others about him. It should be our goal. Let's look at verses 2 through 5 now. 
And the psalmist says, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all of his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord, seek the Lord in his strength, seek, seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works, which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. Here in verses two through five, the psalmist lists here seven ways to make known God's deeds. In the first part of verse two, it says, sing to him. In the second part of verse two, it says, talk of all of his wondrous works. In the first part of verse three, it says, glory in his holy name. That is, don't keep it a secret. In the second part of verse three, it says, let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. And then in the first part of four, verse four, it says, seek the Lord and his strength. That is to witness to others. And then the second part of verse four, it says, seek his face forevermore. That is have communion with him. And then seventh uh, in verse five, it says, remember his marvelous works that he has done. You see, we need to remember what God has done for us. This is why the psalm was written is to remind Israel of what God has done for them. And we would be more thankful to God and we'd be a lot more godly than we are if we would just take the time to stop and to remember just how many times God has been merciful to us and we not forget his mercies. Now, if it seems like God is far away, you know what? Keep searching for him. The Bible says that God rewards those who honestly look for him. Hebrew says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The word diligently means to investigate, to search out, to crave. Do you crave God? Do you crave him? Do you want him enough to investigate him, to search him out? Because you see, God will not be found by the lazy. It says in Jeremiah, said in Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Are we serious about God? Those are the only people who will find God, who seek him, who search for him with all of their heart. And Jesus made this promise in Matthew 7, 8, everyone who seeks finds David suggested a helpful way to find God. He said, get to know how he's helped his people in the past. And the Bible records the history of God's people. And when you read the Bible, you'll find a loving God who's just waiting for us to find him. Verses 6 through 11. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. So the psalmist goes back in history, starting with the descendants of Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God used the Israelites who came from Abraham to reveal his laws to everyone. God chose Abraham and he promised Abraham that his children would be innumerable as the sands of the sea and they would live in the land of Canaan. 
Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob. And these three men are considered to be the patriarchs or founders of Israel. God blessed them. Why? Because of their faith. This, this is God's covenant with his people. Particularly his covenant with Abraham, which he confirmed with his son Isaac and grandson Jacob. A covenant is a promise. And it's not like the promises that man makes. All right? We don't, a lot of times we really don't take them seriously. But God does take his promises seriously. God doesn't make promises and he doesn't take them lightly. God keeps them. Thank God that he keeps them. The covenant promise here is God's promise to give Abraham's children a land of their own. And it's covered in detail in Genesis chapter 15. Listen to what it says here in verse 18. On the same, I'm sorry, in Genesis 15, 18, look what it says. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then we read that God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And Abraham had a vision. He saw a smoking fire pot, a furnace, a flaming torch that was passed between the, the halves of, of the carcasses of animals that he had slaughtered earlier and laid out in the usual way for a covenant ceremony. God told him, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land and they will be oppressed as slaves uh, for 400 years. He says, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. And after four generations, he said, your descendants will return here to this land when the sin of the Amorites has run its course. Genesis 15, 13, and 14, and 16. This promise was repeated to Isaac a generation later in Genesis 26, and then after that to Jacob in Genesis 28. The promise that God made with Abraham and his children is a one-sided sovereign covenant. That means that God alone set the conditions. And God promises to keep it whether or not his people are faithful. And at the same time, we're not to think that the people were excused from any response at all. They had to possess God as their God. And they had to promise God their faithfulness. Just like we do when we come to the Savior Jesus Christ. So the psalm points this out by having the people say in verse 7, He is the Lord our God. This is their response. As well as a reference to the declaration that God made at the start of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20 verse 2, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now from verses 12 through 44, we have a special review of Israel's history. Let's look now at verses 12 through 15. When they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Verses 12 through 15 gives the idea that when God chose Israel, it didn't have anything to do with how big Israel was. It didn't have anything to do how, how many there were in numbers. Actually, they were few in number. It didn't have anything to do with their holiness. Because even Abraham lied about his wife to King Abimelech. 
Now, David doesn't mention that incident here, but it's a part of Israel's history. For what's quoted in verse 15, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Now, if you remember the story of Abraham, he lied to Abimelech, saying that his wife Sarah was his sister, uh, and doing that, Abimelech almost took for, for uh, Abraham's wife for his own before God stepped in and, and, and warned King Abimelech, look, King Abimelech, don't you touch her. She's Abraham's wife. And it was then that God referred to Abraham as a prophet in Genesis 20, verse 7. A line prophet at that. So the point that is being made here is that God's covenant was kept because of God's faithfulness and not man's. So you see, God's choosing and God's preserving of Israel was totally the sovereignty of God. It was totally of God's grace. Verses 16 through 22. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters, and he was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Now, the psalmist follows them through Joseph down into the land of Egypt as he's reviewing Israel's history here. And in this part of this historical review, we have the story about Israel's time in Egypt and when Israel left Egypt. Now, in telling about Joseph, it gives information here that's not found in Genesis. You see, Genesis emphasizes Joseph's character and his spirit of service. But here, the psalmist points out how cruelly Joseph was treated during that time. Especially here in verse 18. Notice it says, They hurt his feet with fetters, and he was laid in irons. So it tells us that when Joseph was first put into prison by, by Potiphar... He was chained by his feet and his neck. But it's not, it's not something that we're told in Genesis. God allowed the Egyptians to persecute his people. One reason is because suffering is one of the secrets of fruitfulness. And notice it says in verse 16, God had called for a famine. God is the one who called for the famine in the land to destroy all the provision of bread and cutting off its food supply. So again, the famine was not a stroke of bad luck. It wasn't bad timing on Abraham's part. It wasn't due to global warming. God called for it. God made it happen. It was God's doing. And as Joseph's position in Egypt, it was no accident either. All that happened to Joseph, it wasn't an accident. His time in prison, it wasn't an accident. God sent him there. He sent him to Egypt. And Joseph spent two long years in prison. The word says that he was forgotten in prison. I mean, to think that you've been forgotten, that'll put you through a test. He went into prison probably thinking, well, I shouldn't be here for long. There's a, it's, a, it's an obvious mistake. They'll have all of this thing straightened out by morning and I'll be out in no time. It's not the way it went. 
He was thinking, after all, you know, God said he was going to make me a ruler over all the princes. You know, if I'm in jail, how can that happen? But after a while, Joseph felt that he had been forgotten, even though he wasn't, because we read a couple of times in the, Genesis, in the story of Joseph that God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph all the time. Verse 19 here says that this was the only time that his word came to pass. This was the only, I'm sorry, verse 19 says this was only until, again, that God's word came to pass. Even after it was over, Joseph looked back and he recognized that, that he recognized it as well. Because he told his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, saving many lives. Now, faith may be tested in the waiting period between the time you get the promise and by the time you actually get the promise. There's a waiting period. Verses 23 through 26 describe the Israelites' history in Egypt from the coming out of Jacob to the Exodus. Look at verses 23 through 24 now. Israel also came into Egypt... And Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. So the amazing growth of the people is described as God's work. The land of Ham or Egypt, both the same place. Verse 25. He turned their heart to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. Did God cause the Egyptians to hate the Israelites? No. God is not the author of evil, James tells us. You see, what had happened is God had multiplied his people until they outnumbered the Egyptians. They, in turn, turned to hate his people, and they plotted against the Lord's people. God used their hostility as a way of leading the Israelites out of Egypt. So God didn't force the Egyptians to hate the Jews, nor did he force Pharaoh to harden his heart. The Lord arranged the circumstances so that Pharaoh and his officers could either obey or disobey his word. And their, and their repeated obedience is what hardened their hearts even more. Exodus tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but also God hardened it. God sent the plagues, but Pharaoh wouldn't obey. In other words, the same sun that melts the ice will also harden the clay. Now, starting with verse 28, the plagues that were brought upon Egypt are described. Now, they're not mentioned in the same order as they were in Exodus. And these plagues were brought against the gods and the goddesses of Egypt, and they were intended to show that the God of Israel was superior to all of the Egyptian gods. There were about 80 major gods in Egypt. And all of them seem to gather around together, you could say, around the three great natural forces of the Egyptian life. All of these 80 gods seem to gather around the Nile River, the land, and the sky. So it makes sense that the plagues that God sent were against these three things. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four plagues were against the land, the land gods. The last four plagues were against the gods of the sky which ended in the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, including Pharaoh's firstborn son, who was to be the next God. Let's look at verse 28 now. 
Well, let's, go, let's begin with verse 26 going to, uh, to 28. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and he made it dark and they did not rebel against his word. So first of all, we see darkness is mentioned here in verse 28. We find it in Exodus chapter 10 verses 21 through 29. That darkness covered the land for three days. Now Ra, spelled R-A, was the name of the sun god. And he was the most important god in the Egyptian temple. But he was suddenly banished from his place in the heavens because it got dark. The word not is not in some of the ancient texts. If it is in in the text, then it would be a reference to Aaron and Moses. For example, look at 28 again. It says, he sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. So the word not, if it refers to uh, Aaron and, um, um, and Moses, it says that they, Aaron and Moses then, did not rebel against his word. But if it refers, refers to the Egyptians, it says then they rebelled, then it would be that they did rebel against his word. So that, again, uh, when, when God sent the darkness, the Egyptians did rebel against his word, if the word not is found in, in the text. Verse 29, notice what it says now. He turned their waters into blood, and he killed their fish. The Nile turned to blood. We see that in Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. Osiris was one of the main Egyptian gods, and he was the god of the Nile. The Egyptians believed that the Nile was his bloodstream. That the Nile is what kept this Egyptian god Osiris alive. This was his life. Then uh, the, the, the god Num, spelled K-H-N-U-M, was considered the guardian of the Nile sources. He was one of the oldest Egyptian gods, and his name means builder. Then there was Hapi, H-A-P-I. He was the spirit of the Nile and, and, and its vibrant essence. That's what it means. In Upper Egypt, Hapimon and Toray were also Nile gods. Prayers and offerings had been made to these gods for thousands of years. But they proved to be nothing compared to the God, the true and the living God. Verse 30. It says, their land. uh, It says, uh, again, their land... Verse 30, their land abounded with frogs, even the chambers of their kings. Now there were frogs. The Egyptians worshipped frogs. Archaeologists have found good luck charms carved in the shape of frogs. Also, one of the most well-known goddesses of Egypt was, uh, I think it's pronounced Hek or Hekt, H-E-K-T. And she's pictured with a head and often with the body of a frog. Since Hecht, or Hecht, was personified in the frog, frogs were sacred, like many other animals were. So they couldn't be killed, just like cows, which are sacred to Hindus, and they can't be killed in India. So because they couldn't be killed, there was no way for the Egyptians to fight against this horrible and ironic, you know, uh, production of the goddess. So they were forced to hate the slimy little frogs that they worshipped. And when those frogs died, their their slimy little corpses had to have turned the land into a horrible stench. Verse 31, the first part, it says that he spoke and there came swarms of flies. Flies are mentioned in Exodus 8, 20 through 32. Insects have always been a problem in Egypt. They still are today. 
But here they were multiplied to a frightening and unbearable amount. And many insects were identified with goddesses and gods and were worshipped, even flies. The second part of verse 31, it says, And lice in all of their territory. Lice or fleas or sand fleas or mosquitoes. Exodus 8, 16 through 19. Because Egypt's soil is one of the most fertile in the world, and that's because of the tons of rich earth that was carried down river from the highlands of Central Africa, and it deposited in Egypt by the, years, the river's yearly flooding. The soil grew wonderful nourishing grain, fruits, and vegetables. And as part of God's judgment on, on Jeb, the god of the earth, the land would produce even more insects to afflict the people. Verse 32 through 33. Then it says, God gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. Hail, fire, and thunder. We see this in Exodus 9, 13, and 35. This was the first of four plagues that were directed at the gods and goddesses of the sky. Because it doesn't hail in Egypt. And there's hardly any rain there. Cairo gets only two inches of rain a year. And then there are years in the southern parts of Egypt where there's no rain at all. And now the skies are filled with clouds. The Bible says here it was a terrible storm. It struck their vines. It struck their fig trees. It splintered trees. And men and animals died. The only place it didn't touch was Goshen. Why? Because that's where the Israelites were. Shu, S-H-U, the sun god of the atmosphere, Horus and Month, the bird gods, Nut, perfect name, N-U-T, the sky goddess. They couldn't stop Jehovah's judgment. You know, again, it just, God was showing his power and his wonder. And again, the reason why we need to tell people about the wonder and the power of our God. Verse 34 through 35. God spoke and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. So now we have the locusts. They're mentioned in Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. The locusts ate whatever they could find. The locusts ate whatever vegetation and fruit was left after the hailstorm. Nepri was the goddess of grain. Anubis was the guardian of the fields. Min was the god of harvest. Where were all these guys when these judgments came? Because they sure didn't help the Egyptians. Verse 36. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all of their strength. The death of the firstborn. This is found in Exodus 11, verses 1 through, uh, Exodus 11, 1 through Exodus 12, verse 30. This was the last and worst plague of them all. Pharaoh was told that at midnight, God was going to pass through the land and he was going to kill all the firstborn sons in every family, from the greatest to the lowest, even of the cattle. It was just a plague. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because you see, earlier, Pharaoh had killed Israel's male children, in addition to the Israelites being slaves there in Egypt for a long time. So after the death angel came through the land, it's no surprise that Egypt was glad when the Israelites left. Not to mention, they were even sent away with gifts. They were saying, here you guys, we'll pay you to get out of here. Verse 37. 
get out of town. God's word was never more clear, never more direct, never more personal or powerful. And yet it still took 10 terrible plagues to let Israel go. And even then, Pharaoh didn't get saved. But you know what? Don't get discouraged if people reject your witness. You see, God's word will do what God wants it to do. Because the word of God is never spoken without it. That is, without God's word doing what God intended it to do. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says, speaking of God's word, as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. It's God's word. And we're called to preach it. We're we're called to give it out. The results are up to God. Our responsibility is to give it. And then after that, God does his work. Verses 37 through 45 as we close. It says, He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of the Lord had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. We see God and the Exodus. The last few verses follow Israel through her wandering in the desert until God actually brought the people into Canaan and again keeping the promise that he made to Abraham. Pointing out, it points out that God took care of his people during those years of wandering. He protected them from the hot desert sun by covering them with a cloud. He gave them quail. He gave them bread from heaven. He gave them water from the rock. He did all of these wonderful things. Why? Because he remembered his holy promise to Abraham, his servant. And that's why he did it. Not because of the people's faithfulness, but because of the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. And the point is that nothing God had promised was lacking. So it takes us back to verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Now think about this. We have received even greater blessings than they did. So how much more should we give thanks to the Lord? And then one last thought in verse 45, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. All of this happened so that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. God's purpose for saving the Israelites was so that they would follow his principles and obey his laws. Because too many times we use our lives and our freedom to please ourselves. To do our own will when we should be honoring God. 
That's his purpose for our lives. That's why he gave us his word. The basic point of God's covenant love might be simply a chosen or unusual people that they might be holy like he is. Father, again, we thank you for, again, this psalm of of the faithfulness of God, Lord, and how he took care of the people. Father, how he blessed them, how he kept his promise to them, Lord, because he is faithful even when we are not, Lord. And Father, we thank you again that you don't give up on us, Lord, that you don't back off on us, Lord, that you don't take your word back, and that, Father, that you keep your promises because, Lord, we couldn't survive without them, God. Thank you for your love in our life. Thank you for your grace, your abounding grace, Lord. Thank you for your enduring mercies, Lord. And Father, we thank you that we are your people and that you are our God. And Lord, help us not to forget you, Lord. Lord, as you gave the warning to your people in Deuteronomy, Lord, that God, when you have multiplied our possessions and our cattle and our herds, and where you've multiplied our, our crops. And God, we're living in our, in our comfortable houses. And you've made us prosperous, Lord. And we've eaten to the fullest. And we're satisfied. Help us not to forget you. And that it is you, God, who has made us able to get wealth. In other words, you've given us the ability to get wealth, to experience your goodness, God. You've given us the the strength. You've given us the health, Lord. You've given us everything that we have, God. It all comes from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. And Father, we would pray now that you would just go before us and that God, again, we would do as, as again, the psalmist said at the beginning of verse one, Lord, that we would give thanks to you, that Father, we'd call upon your name and that we would make known your mighty works to others, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. And again, if there's anybody here that that doesn't know you, again, I believe everybody here that um, I did see was was a believer. But uh, if God's word spoke to you and and you you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, come up to the front afterwards and let those up here up front know that you want to receive Christ and they'll pray the sinner's prayer with you. But Lord, may you bless your people and and may you bless their time of fellowship, God. So Lord, we thank you. We give you honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Pastor Tony will share a few announcements.